Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern and I am joined by Angelina Stanford. Freshly returned from Montana. Yeah. Heidi White. Heidi White, where are you freshly returned from? Oh, my car, I guess. <laughs> I just, I'm always in Colorado Springs. Here I am. <laughs> so you're homeless. This is the announcement. This is the admission you're making on the air. I am, I am not homeless. Our friends who remind me of these people, they're a little bit homeless and living with us. So, um, ah. but not me. I have lots and lots of people in my home. And then Andrew and Karen <laughs> Kern are staying with us Too tonight. Many people. So you're running over off the weekend. Yeah, bed and breakfast. Little B&B. It'll be just delightful. Exactly. You get up in the morning, you make breakfast for everybody. No, Andrew likes to make his own breakfast. Like Palazzo Lang. I did make sure I got lots of frozen berries for yeah. his smoothies. And I was his uh his apple cider vinegar. That's right. I think are, he's over that now. Actually. Are we saying things we should not be saying? <laughs> I don't know. Probably. I feel like this is like good heads up to anybody who invites your dad over. He requires items. <laughs> no he's one not, he does. He's not low maintenance. <laughs> That's right. But then he has so many amazing things to say. So I'm looking forward to that. I did not say that as a criticism. <laughs> I was going to say, who's not low maintenance? <laughs> considering that I showed up at your house and you had my... My my required type of butter for my coffee. I don't know that I was putting Andrew in a different category than me. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. No well, this is how you love people. Exactly. There was absolutely no judgment in me that's, calling him high maintenance. That's right. Well, people speaking, know what they like. Speaking of high maintenance people, we are here to talk about crossing to safety. We're going to talk about chapters seven through ten, and um, much happens in chapters seven through ten. Much drama. Before we dive into that, though, let me just do a say a quick reminder. The Play's The Thing, our new Shakespeare show, is up and running. We have talked about the first couple acts of King Lear. So if you want to be a part of that or you want to listen and, you know, leave negative comments about something we say, then the only way you can know what what negative things that we say, (laughs) then you'll have to listen to the show. So head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, wherever you get podcasts. And actually, we are now up on Spotify as well. Then you can subscribe, click that little button. It's pretty easy. takes like two taps um, and you can get get that show into your whatever listening device or box or thing that you are using now uh, to get your pods and then also we have starting on monday we have the daily poem starting um, next week you're gonna have to listen to poems read by me so i've been telling people if you don't want to listen to a turtle that sounds like it's got a wombat up its nose then maybe don't listen <laughs> but if you just care about the poems and less about the person who's reading them then you can also subscribe to that show um, we're starting with 20 very famous poems kind of in the first four weeks. And then after that, we'll branch it out a little bit and kind of alternate between really famous poems and some lesser known poems, older poems and contemporary poems. Occasionally, you know, perhaps part of a soliloquy or a speech from Shakespeare, maybe a few lines of epic poetry. But every weekday morning, we are going to be bringing you 
some kind of poem or portion of a poem. If the poems are short, we will read them twice for those of you who are driving and didn't get it all the first time. And I've been telling people as well that to read a poem out loud is necessarily kind of an interpretive act. So Mm -hmm. there's a good chance that you will hear some way that we read a poem such as my reading of The Road Not Taken. And you may think that's complete nonsense. If that is true, then I would think that it'd be too much to keep it to your, to ask you to keep it to yourself. But, um, you know, read it aloud yourself and send us the recording or give us a comment or something. Um, but uh, I have takes on The Road Not Taken. It's not a show for takes, but I read it with my take in mind. So... Um, <laughs> Who's on first? the first first, i'll just i'll just tell you the first poem that we're going to do is well i'll just say this it's from shakespeare we'll just say that it's a shakespearean sonnet first thing we read so monday morning if you want to find out what shakespearean sonnet we have for you love is not love which alters where alteration finds i'm not gonna i am i'm not gonna tell you that's my request you're gonna have to listen oh what you know i don't listen to podcasts (laughs) well (laughs) then it won't matter to you anyway although i gotta say all this uh trash that matt bianco has been talking on the close reads facebook page has got me pretty close to wanting to listen you know he keeps calling tim mcintosh out and making threats and saying he's gonna pick a fight oh no they they argue intensely it's um there's lots of argument um they, it's, they, like they're, it's like they're doing a Shakespeare tragedy or something. And he wants to all be dead at the end of this episode. I did. I'm not, I will say that I did start the first episode by telling them that they, how much airtime they got would determine by how much they loved me and how well they expressed it. So um, <laughs> we're still working all of that out. Over I was this close to making a joke that would spoil the ending of King Lear. Look, and people say I cannot keep my mouth shut. Case in point. So discreet. The yeah, soul well, of discretion right here. Angelina's uh, the unfurred. Well, um, we'll see how the rest of this show goes, right? Um, We are here to talk about chapter seven through 10 of Crossing to Safety, and we will dive right in. Um, Like I said, there's a lot that happens. Probably more has happened in these few chapters than in the six previous chapters. And much is going to continue to happen. It's a book that sort of begins to pick up a little bit. Um, we get all the stuff with just if you if you I know we had a lot of people say they read they finished the book, so I'll just quickly give the ten second summary. Well, you know, brief summary of what happened in these chapters. But there's lots of talk about um, whether Sid and Larry are going to get their contracts renewed at the school and be able to stick around. Lots of talk about um, what the different things that they're publishing. Larry gets a story accepted in, I think the Atlantic or something like that. Then you also have the whole scenario with um, Sally giving birth to Lang and that the drama that goes in there. And then you have the, uh, the capsizing of the rented boat out on the lake and the subsequent um, offer by um, the Langs to the Morgans to stay in the house because Sid got re-upped at the school, but Larry did not. And then we end with the knowledge that Sally and the baby are going to go stay with the Langs or with, yeah, with the Langs for the summer. And um, Larry's going to stay back and work while living in Palazzo Lang. Okay. So that's basically what happened for those of you that finished it. I figure the chapters start to get a little bit blended together and confusing. We had some comments about that. So I just wanted to get that clarified so people remember kind of where we are because we rarely talk specifically about plot points in in close reads 
Um, <laughs> what so, is a plot anyway? <laughs> no, so, somebody's got to play the role of Tim, right? Is there a plot in this book? Yeah, exactly. Well, I didn't really say that, Graham. Don't hurt me. <laughs> He's not here right now. Um, right, let's talk a little bit more about... Well, actually, I'm curious... I've got things I want to talk about, but I want to give you each a chance to tell what are some things that you like, what's one thing that you're dying to talk about? I'll give you each a chance. Heidi, I'll let you go first. What's the one thing that you would love to talk about in this, in this story? Not because I didn't prepare because I did, but um, just because, you know, let's, I want to hear what other people are thinking. Sure. Uh, I, I really liked these chapters. This book is starting to feel to me like a series of short stories almost. Um, I know he's talking about memories and high points in the relationship in order to unfold towards some kind of converging point that we're getting to. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is starting to feel like these lovely little, like pearls on a string short stories. And I think I'd like to really talk about the capsize, the boat capsizing scene. I loved that chapter. I thought I, I underlined almost everything. It's rare to see a sentence in these that are in that chapter. That's not, whoa, look how much this reflect this is such an objective correlative or a symbol of just the, the uh, uh, like a tiny cosmology of this entire relationship. So I'm excited to talk about that. Okay. So chapter 10, the boat capsizes. Mm-hmm. Um, Angelina. Um. Yes. I also actually wrote in the margin, I underlined something and said, this is a microcosm of the entire novel. So yeah, mm-hmm. I thought that was well done. Well, yeah, we've talked before about how I'm an archetypal pattern reader. So of course this got my little North Fire heart going fast. You know, I had not one, but two death and rebirth scenes. So I was getting excited. So <laughs> I'm excited that halfway through this book, we had four deaths and rebirths. They all have died and been reborn. And I'm excited to see what our author is going to do with this. And you're just referring to in chapter 10, or are you also referring yes. to... Well, Sally had it in um, with the childbirth. That was yeah. definitely... I mean, she comes out like a corpse. That was quite plain that she had experienced her own personal death and rebirth. But the four of them now, which of course, you know, as Heidi was saying, points to the larger plot as well, because things are now changed because Larry has not gotten the appointment. Um, and so we'll see um, what happens. Of course, you know, they, they go through the death and the rebirth and they, and they come out and um, Charity and Sid seem to be recommitted more than ever to the friendship. So it, it, it appears to be a bond, at least at this point, a bond that has drawn them all closer together. And I think we're going to see that the second half of the book, you know, be the upswing now. Well, one thing that's, yeah, what's very interesting which is a word I always, I know I say too much. I know listeners, every time I say it, are just yelling at their car MP3 players or whatever they're using. It's but, a banned um, word in IEW. It only took me three years, David, just to not cry when I hear you say interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not writing. So um, <laughs> it's fascinating. I mean, at this point, like, what, what, we just use, what, like, just keep a thesaurus in front of me and just pick, choose one. Um, <laughs> no, now that I know it's not a, you know, a left-handed insult, say it all you like. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Well, no, it, it is interesting to me though, that, um, the conflict, you know, there's been sort of a, there's sort of a ongoing question as you're reading the first, say 75 pages of what is the conflict of the story? Like, and the conflict, it's sort of boiling under the surface, a lot of it, but then we get these scenes where real drama, and you know, I kind of use that quote that like 
air quote around real drama begins to happen with Sally almost dying in the childbirth and the, and the baby becoming, you know, getting, um, you know, sort of damaged. Um, and then we also get the stuff with the boat. And so all these dramatic, um, life altering life, um, well, life altering, but, but also there's like real stakes in those scenes. Mm-hmm. They begin happening for the first time, but so far not in a way that causes rift between any of them. So, right. the, you know, these chapters end with a great amount of, um, stakes, heavy drama, but they end with them coming together. Right. And so structurally, that's really interesting that they're, that he's introducing the, the stakes, but he hasn't put anything out there yet that is potential. Well, potential, I suppose, but he has not created rift in any way between them. And, you know, I've kind of talked as we've gone through these episodes that I, I was waiting before I made a judgment on the nature of this friendship because I could read it two different ways at the beginning. But I think I'm ready now to say that I trust this as a genuine friendship. I, I don't, you know, as any friendship will, it'll, it'll have its turbulent moments and its challenges, but I think it's genuine. I do not perceive any bad motive here with Sid and Charity because uh, I think that if in any way they were using them or had perceived that Larry was a rising star that they wanted to attach themselves to, this would have been the moment to dump him, right? He didn't get the, he didn't get the promotion. Uh, and yeah, and they, there's so, like, there's no, there's no benefit other than just the enjoyment and love they have of these two people that I can perceive of why they would be hanging on to this. So I think I'm ready to say it's a genuine friendship. And that seems to be how, you know, Larry and Sally feel at the end of chapter 10. He says very specifically at Christmas time, we, we liked them, but then here we knew that we loved them because they had proven themselves to us in a, in a sense. And I loved how he ended that chapter, you know, in case, in case I haven't ever told them, I tell them now. That was so lovely. Mm-hmm. In some ways it's, um, I think that in a sense that it kind of foreshadows some trouble though, wouldn't you say? Yes. Oh, you mean that they never told him? Yeah. Like if that was something that they never expressed, what is, I mean, why had he never expressed that before? At the very least, it says something. I don't know. Do men tell each other in the 1930s that they loved each other? I guess that didn't strike me as odd. Um, I'm not saying it's necessarily odd. I'm just saying um, that it's at least, it's telling that over the course of their whole life, they had, they had never expressed, he had never expressed that affection for, for them, to them. Right. In a, I mean, right. in a way that he could have been sure that they knew it. Um, let's come back to chapter 10 in a minute. I want to talk about something that we brought up briefly last time. And that is the character of Sally. Mm-hmm. Yes, I still don't know who the heck she is. Because we, we discussed how yeah, you, you both said you didn't feel like you knew her. She was in it very little um, previously, but now she's been in it much more. She's mm-hmm. gone but through has she? I mean, lying there unconscious, almost dying in childbirth, I can't really say that she's... I, I, I still don't know who she is. We don't get any... This was disappointing to me, right? I wanted to hear... I want some of Sally's reflections on this. I, I was expecting some kind of aftermath of her coming home and reflecting on what had happened or anything just make her a real person already i'm getting impatient you keep telling me she's your favorite so i presume at some point she will blossom as a full human being but she's just larry's appendage to me at this point well let me okay well heidi do you want to comment Mm -hmm. on that i 
I I think that she's unfolding more in the, in these chapters on page one thirty when it describes uh, where are they are they in yes when they're when they're in the boat before the shipwreck um, he describes he says Charity is tall and striking Sally smaller darker quieter one dazzles the other warms I really like that little description of her and Mm. i i think that that does give us a sense of out of all four of these people she is the one who's not putting herself forward and demanding attention see but i feel like that line speaks to exactly what i'm talking about her only function as a human being is that she warms larry you see like the whole perception of her is how she contributes to him as a person she's the editor she's the i mean you know she's the one who's helping him write like i just i don't feel like i know who she is apart from larry um well i think so well i I think i read her differently than you um well yeah because you've read it already no but well okay but i'm thinking even in terms of what what stegner is doing here um, and yeah, so sure, sure. Yeah, I've read it. I, so certainly I'm reading it in that way, but I think, I don't think that she's meant to be, to be an appendage to Larry. I think she's meant to be in some ways, I think she and charity are foils for one another. So I think that what happens is Sally feels like she doesn't, she feels like less of a human because charity is so enormous in the imagine in, in terms of the context of the story she she sort of um hovers over it and um haunts is not the word i'm looking for because it's got a negative connotation but she um overcomes she kind of she's overbearing in, well, in, she's, in the story she's and, an anchor or, or you mean charity yes i agree charity, with you yeah. she dazzles well, yeah, yeah yeah she dazzles i think that's i think what i think that little analogy that metaphor that that segner is giving us there tells us a lot so i think that one of the reasons why sally feels like less of a person is because she's in contrast with charity. I do think there's an extent to which Larry himself is sort of, there's a protectiveness there going on. But I think also um, at this point, if we, if she was, I think she's um, dwarfed in some ways by the bigness Mm -hmm. of charity's personality. And I think that what that's meant to do is meant, it's meant to suggest a problem. Right. In, In my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think it's meant to su- Well, I think this all supports my saying I don't feel like I know her. I mean, that would be true in real life, too. If I met Charity and Sally, if I went out to, you know, the faculty lunch with them, I'm sure I would walk away with a very strong impression of Charity and not a very strong, not a negative impression of Sally, but I wouldn't walk away thinking of Sally, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'd think about Charity. Yeah, that right. this is very striking. Yeah. Um, Heidi, go ahead. Oh, I was... I was going to comment that Angelina, to your point, um, chapter eight, which is the chapter that describes when his book is accepted for publication and when they all have this party to celebrate him uh, over and over again in that chapter, there's this sense of everybody one-upping Sally, failing to consider her, dismissing her and outshining her. And that she puts up no complaint to that. And there's no judgment on her for that. It's I think it's left up. Obviously, we know Larry's in love with her. And so he's 
the way he described, he continues to describe her with such restraint and protection in the way that he feels and talks about her. Um, but well, everybody else sees her beauty and her gentleness. And I mean, I think that does reveal her character, but to Angelina's point, she is constantly outshone and she doesn't, she doesn't demand attention. So isn't that like characterization through mm-hmm. in a sense? Though? Yeah, that's my point. That actually, I think that reveals who she is. I don't think that disguises her. I think that reveals her, but I think Angelina's point is valid that who else really knows her and Does what that, do we know about sorry. her? No, this is true. And, and I'm not expecting Sally to suddenly become a very active character. I just, I would have loved to see a conversation between Larry and Sally after the childbirth. Just, I just wanted to get inside her head. Hmm. That's yeah, a and very, he, very traumatic thing to have happen. It will, it will leave a mark on her forever. And I right. wanted to know about it. Right. Well, and I think that that is what Larry is telling us. She's not that kind of person. She doesn't need to dazzle and be seen. She is, she's to be protected. She's that there's a gentleness um, to her and a frailty to her, or maybe a hidden strength that just doesn't need that. Yeah, I would say it's not, I mean, I would, I would guess that he, that Stegner, that is probably mm-hmm. didn't like just forget about Sally after that. Of course not. He right? made a conscious decision to leave out the you know any aftermath conversation. There's, Absolutely. there's zero aftermath of any kind, though. It's right. not just Sally. He doesn't give any reflection after it happens. There's nothing with they don't. Even, there's not even any chatter with with Sid and Charity. I mean, the only reference is like it's six months later or something, and Charity's like, "Oh, it'll be so good for Sally's health to come up to Vermont." Right. But I want to. I, I, when I was accidentally interrupting you there for a second, because uh, the internet is a stupid thing. Um, <laughs> in chapter seven, early in chapter seven, 98 and 99 is in my copy. I think they're the same. There's that part there where you, I think Angelina, you mentioned that Sally is his editor. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a really interesting um, contrast here. Cause it's, he's talking about, um, he's talking about ambition he talks about how ambition is a path, not a destination. And it's essentially the same path for everybody. And we already know that charity has great ambitions, right? She has great ambitions for her, but also for her husband, you know? Um, and then there's this part here where it talks about he, he, after breakfast, he would go, he would go write for a while and then he'd go teach and all that kind of stuff. And it says, Sally had a part in everything I wrote, most of which I read to her after bedtime or during breakfast. She was critic, editor, gadfly, memory bank, research assistant, typist. She decided when things were good enough to be sent out, when they needed doing over, when they wouldn't do it all. And when I was shut in the furnace furnace room or off at school, she had her own occupations almost always with charity. And then it says they were together all the time. Charity expending herself in 20 directions pulled Sally along with her. And you mentioned Heidi last week. I think that there's this really interesting passage about Sally where, where it talks in the uh, passive voice. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so we have this again here. We have Sally being pulled, Charity's pulling her all around. Like Charity herself barely gives Sally any agency. But I, right. but that's, that's in contrast to the way he actually writes about her here, that he says that she was the critic, the editor of the Gadfly, and then she decided when things were good enough. Right. Um, she has a, a, a certain amount of agency that he, he is 
you know, attributing to her, um, to her judgment, to her taste, to her ability to tell him, uh, when something needs to change. Um, and I think that there's an act, there's an activity there an agency and, you know, sort of a, it, it lacks the passivity in terms of the characterization that even charity allows her to have. Um, and I, so I think that, um, I think that, well, certainly to understand charity at this point, we have to be reading through the, between the lines. Um, and it's interesting though, both couples, you have the, the wife sort of guiding the husband's career differently, but each playing a, an important role in that. I was thinking a lot about Wendell Berry and yes, Tony, me Tony too. Berry when I was me reading too. this. Because I went out to visit them. And if you've ever read stuff, she she said about how much she... You know, he gets criticized or has gotten criticized sometimes for, you know, she types up his, he handwrites it, she types it up and all this kind of stuff. And, and people over the years have criticized him for like, I don't know, restricting the amount that she can live her own life and all this kind of stuff. And she'll say, like, when, if you talk to her in person, she's like, that's nonsense. I can, do, I could, I don't have to do that if I don't want to. I choose this life. Yeah. Exactly. And, I relate um, to that. No. Yeah. And he says about her, uh, everything I have ever written has been for her, like just to make her smile, her approval. That is everything yeah, right. he's ever written is for her approval. That is amazing to me. Yeah. Um, so I thought about that a lot when I was reading this, that, you know, you could see Tanya Berry, I think there's a lot of Sally in her, in terms of her sort of, um, well, I mean, I don't want to, Tanya Berry's a real person. So that's probably an overstatement, but you, like, there's a, um, the way she is, um, she can be in real life. Tanya Berry can be very outspoken as necessary, particularly, and mm -hmm. she can, she can like make fun of Wendell a lot. And, you know, if they have a very interesting dynamic, as you'd expect with very smart people who've been married for a very long time, but she also has, doesn't need to be in the limelight. Right. Mm -hmm. she, and you can tell that she's guided him and that she is, um, and that she values the idea of, caring for him of making a home of being an editor of being someone who can help with what his calling is. And she sees that as her own calling and doesn't see that as a negative thing, right? She sees it as an active thing, not as a passive thing. Right. Um, and I think what you see in charity here is this extreme activeness, right? Like an almost, she can't sit down because you know, she's so active that she always has to be going along. She always has to be in charge. You almost see it on the boat a little bit, right? Like you send, you see some control, she likes to be in control. Um, and whereas Sally doesn't need that to, to feel like she's doing something with herself. Right. Um, and I'm not saying we have a fully rounded character yet, but you know, that's the beautiful thing about not being finished with the book. <laughs> right. Right. Well, to Angelina's point is valid in, in that we're not oh, yeah, behind her just, eyes. Not we're not behind okay. her eyes. We're not in her head. Um, and I, I do think in these Absolutely. chapters, yeah. we're getting a much fuller um, understanding of this woman with great ability who has chosen these relationships and spends her life investing in them without needing to be dazzling in the center of attention. And their response to her is, I think, really sweet that they are so loving and protective of her, not because she's passive, because I agree with you. I don't see her as passive. I see her as this is as, as actively choosing that life. 
I think it's interesting too. I mean, obviously it makes sense because Larry's actually married to her, but you don't see charity with her children. Right. At all. Well, and Sally comments on that. Sally's oh, yeah. insightful about point. that. And she, she does, she does defend charity. And so she's a wonderful mother. She reads store kids. She's there with them all the time, but she says, but I never see her gather them up just because she loves them. That's an insightful remark to make. She's mm. doing like, to, I think you said, I can't remember the phrase you used, but it was very good, David, something about the activity, kind of this frantic sense of activity and management of all the relationships in her life of charity versus um, Sally, who seems, I think, to study the people she loves and to fill in gaps, their gaps. Yeah, charities, you know, her doing this is so tied to ambition, I think. Mm-hmm. that it leaves very little room for sort of doing things for their own sake. Right. Like the idea of just bringing your children around because for their sake, because, because you love them, because that's the, you know, that's right for the moment. Whereas if ever so much of what charity is doing is for like the next moment down the line, what's the next thing we're going to do? Where are we going to be? What are we going to accomplish? What are people going to think of us that she has a hard time stopping and saying like this, this is in the, in the moment, this is the right thing to do. Right. Well, I don't even know that I would think of it as in the moment, this is the right thing to do, but that she's not enjoying the moments. That's kind of spontaneous enjoyment. Mm. I, th- I think that's more like what Sally in the is moment? referencing. Yeah. Like, in, like yeah. she's always so focused on her plans that it can right. make it difficult to, to just enjoy and be in the moment where, where even the reading to, I'm, I bet you our, our, bet you our listeners can really relate to this, you know, being a homeschool mom, you can have lots of those kind of moments where you're on task, right? And you're doing the thing and we're moving forward and we're spending all this time together, but you feel frazzled and dragged along and, and not necessarily enjoying those moments. And I think I think most homeschoolers struggle with the tension between staying on the schedule and having those spontaneous moments of joy together. For mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, I think that's true of, I mean, even beyond, like I think anybody who teaches has that question, Right, right. Right. But so I, so I, 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 you, you get the off, sense you know. that, that, you know, Charity might be missing those moments of joy with her children in her, her plans. I mean, even the, I knew even, you know, even the, no, don't, does it, you can't name the child Lang. We're going to, the plan Lang, is to Lang. marry our children, right? Like yeah. just because everything's a plan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. She, she wants a lot of children, Sally says, a real lot, six or seven, the last four, preferably girls. <laughs> So she has the plan for how many children she's going to have and she wants to have the most children and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, right. What did you talk about Sid at all before we get to the, before we get to chapter 10? In what well, way? I think we're seeing the same stuff from Sid, the two Sids, the two, you know, that kind of low grade resentment of charity. You skit, Sid specifically says on page 99 in chapter seven, it's making a schizophrenic of me. So we're uh-huh. very specifically, he's right. telling us there's two, two Sids going on here. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There's it? a, there's a lot of that. Just say that and move on. Are we good? <laughs> yeah. I don't think in these chapters, I don't think we necessarily learn anything new about him as much as have the, the things that we had already talked about really cemented and seen in action in more than that one situation. Okay. Well, then let me yeah, ask you. I mean, he, that's got to, I mean, I'm guessing here, but that has got to come to a head at some point. Yeah. 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 I mean, and you kind of see, well, well, we'll wait till we get to chapter 10, but do you, 
in these chapters, we're going to take off kind of our literary reading hat here for a second. Mm-hmm. Do you like Sid? Yes, I do like Sid. Why? No, I'm not saying, I don't, I'm not asking that question. Like, how could you like Sid? I'm asked, I'm right. actually wondering why. <laughs> right. Well, I it's think. It's not a leading question. No, I get that. I, I think I like him because for the, many of the same reasons Larry seems to like him. I've bought Larry's story of Sid. So um, I like, I feel some protectiveness of him. I, I, I wish he could go live on the Lake Isle of Innisfree and, you know, <laughs> plant his nine bean rows and, and write poetry. I want that for him. Um, I feel the, a little bit of the frust. I have an emotional investment in him. I feel a little bit of the frustration of stand up for yourself. Like, do, like claim, claim your life. And, um, and that, that makes you like someone when you care what happens to them, right? Even if you disagree with their choices, you like them better. Cause you're like, now I have, I, I have something I want from you as the reader. I want something for him, which makes me like him. And I, I like the, I, I like the two, the dual natures of him, how he's kind of always going back and forth. I, I, I want him to reconcile himself. Um, and I think he's fun. He seems like a like a guy you'd want to have at your party, hang. right? Yeah, like I want him to come over for dinner and bring what is it? What's the champagne. phrase that it says? Like bring gloves. champagne, like clubs, like bearing. He came roaring in with <laughs> bottles of champagne in either hand. I think that's a that's a description of him, right? Yeah. So, Angelina, do you like Sid? Oh man, that's just not the way I think about books. I don't know how to answer that. Try. <laughs> I just, those are not questions I ask myself. Well, okay. It's such an uninteresting, I mean, I guess all I can think is it's such an, it's the literally least interesting thing to me about a book. Like I just never ask myself that. Do I like a character? I don't know how to answer that. Hmm. It seems so irrelevant to me. Why? Am I, am I supposed to like or dislike characters? Is that the point of writing a book? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think oh. that's, if you're writing a book, I think it's, it, I think it, it definitely matters to an author. Now, that, but that's why I said it's a different kind of reading for sure. Like you're, there's a different mode to reading. Um, I think that if you're like, if an author is creating a character and I'm not saying I'm just, trying to express this as somebody who has tried to write characters. I think if you're writing a character and your audience doesn't know how they feel about the character, then you're going to feel like you've done the bad job. Does that make sense? So the question is like, is it badly drawn in your opinion? Or do you not feel strongly about them? Like, do you root for him? Does make, does, does I feel like Graham's going to hunt me down in my sleep. I am not rooting for anybody in this. This book has not. That's taken, a totally valid answer. This book has not taken me. I'm, that's, I'm, hang, that's, I'm, I'm hanging in there with you guys, but yeah, I, I don't I, I'm sorry. No, no, no. So, um, well then do you, so do you, um, I wouldn't say that I dislike them because that, it feels like that requires a passion that I don't feel about any of these characters. So what do you, okay. No, see, that's a totally valid, valid answer. I have no problem with that. What do you feel like 
Um, so you, you've obviously read books where you love characters, right? Yes, like, sure. Like, Elizabeth, like you like Elizabeth Bennet as a character. You yeah, like I do. Interesting. Um, you want good when you read Pride and Prejudice. You want good things to happen to her, right? Yes. Okay. So when you read these characters, do you feel like you don't? Did you that you want something good to happen to them, or do you do they feel too indistinct to feel that to think about that way at all? <sighs> okay, so I hadn't thought about this beforehand, but I will answer honestly. Um, I'm just kind of along for the ride. Whether a tragedy happens or not, I do not feel emotionally invested in this people, their lives, or these relationships. Okay, and again, that's totally. I don't. I don't actually don't have a problem. With that I have at actually all. found much more interesting the conversations about the muse, poetry, writing, literature, publication. All of that has felt sure. so much more real and interesting to me. Those are the moments when I've gotten kind of excited or been like, finally, something interesting okay that's totally that is that well do you think it's because nothing happens so to speak well no i think we've established that that, that kind of stuff doesn't bother me i loved howard's in i found the characters fascinating <laughs> yeah. to the point that i didn't care if they did anything so i would not i would say that's normally a problem but i i, I and maybe that's why i feel like i don't know who sally is i just i'm really not I'm just not into these people. Like nothing about them strikes me as interesting. Like Heidi's having this whole like personal moment of just, you know, fascinating and it's personal and all this stuff. And I, I feel so disconnected from this book for some reason, just, and I know that others on the Facebook page have said the same thing that they're really struggling to connect with it. I like the writing. I think the writing is good. I think the story is well crafted. I just, yeah. There's just something that, no, no, no. So there's just something that's not, the characters themselves. So the I hate to say it. I hate to say it. I'm just not feeling it. But I hate I hate to say that. But since you since you asked me, see that okay. I guess that's what I meant when I said those are not questions I ask myself. Like I wouldn't criticize a work of art because it did not personally relate to me. And maybe that's what's happening here. I cannot personally relate to anything in this story, and yet I, I would I would not be prepared to say that is a criticism of the book. Yeah, I was going to ask you. So, do, do you, is it because there's um, something in the characterization that's not appealing to you, or well, I've it, never even been in a couple, much less a couple relationship, like where it's two friends. Like it's just it's so it's so off the radar to me. I, I cannot relate to any of it. Hmm. Um. No, that that's so you're I not. Want, I want to relate to it. I, it's just yeah. I'm, I guess, I mean, the question of do I root for them? I'm not exactly sure what I'm supposed to be rooting for. The promotion? That they love each other in the end? I mean. That's, I, I see you're actually bringing it around to some. That's questions. great. Yeah, to that's the, a great comment. questions that I'm working towards here. So we talk a lot about like, what is like plotlessness and stuff like that. Um, and like questions of conflict. And I mentioned, you know, this is the first time we have some real conflicts here. So one of my questions kind of is what, that I was going to bring up today is like, what is the central sort of thing that feels like this book is leading towards or like that we want it to be leading towards or um, that we're drawn to um, hoping happens mm -hmm. because um, that speaks to what Heidi's point was about the uh, sort of short story nature of it. And so, and I, I don't, I don't think of it that way. I don't think that's true personally. Um, 
but, and I could give some, you know, we could go into some, a lot of structural stuff about that if we really wanted to, but I don't think that's terribly interesting right now. But Heidi, what do you, so what do you think of what she's saying about, you don't like when you're talking about rooting for something, what do we feel like, what does she feel like she's supposed to be rooting for? I think that's a great comment and a really important question about this book. Um, and to what, to, to tie into what you just said about how I don't think it feels like a series of short stories. That's because I think, you know, the converging point and I, I am intentionally reading it. I'm, I'm enjoying the experience of reading along with, uh, the, um, schedule of reading and not reading ahead. (laughs) So I'm kind of reining myself in to do that as a challenge to myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. to not color these podcasts uh, because of the conversations we've had about structure and meaning over do the you, last few do weeks. Do you feel like you, like a little bit different than Angelina, where you feel like you really do like the characters? Oh, I love the characters. And I think what Angelina said is really important that this is one of those books because of that kind of meandering sense of plotlessness. Uh, there's why else would you read this unless you liked the characters? So I think that's really valid. And why else would you connect with the characters unless they, in some ways, reminded you of yourself or relationships that you've experienced? And so I think that's super valid, which to Angelina's point is, I get it. This is a well-written, well-structured, well-crafted novel. Um, I just don't necessarily relate to it. So I'm trying not to ask myself the feeling question, right? (laughs) Um, Because I do see it's a good book. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I don't I, want my personal experience to be like the focus of the book, but it can't be for me. It's, this is way too, it's just out of completely out of my universe. Right. And I think that that's really fair. So um, in terms of the question of just, what are we like supposed to be about pride and prejudice, right? <laughs> God, some lots of people feel that way about Jane Austen. Um, but the question you asked in two different ways, what's the conflict of the story and who are we supposed to be rooting for that? is in, if I were to make a guess, I would say that all of that has somehow been revealed in the very first chapter. We just don't know yet. So they're sitting there um, in this summer home that they've come back to many times. And we have the whole issue of memory and circular time and returning and leaving and all that, uh, which yeah, we've so seen the, in a couple different ways. Uh, yes. The, that like we talked about on the stuff. very first yeah. podcast all came up in that first chapter. And then we have that very significant two or three line conversation in which Sally says, so what are you saying? Are you saying it's over? Mm. Right. And We don't know why she asked that question. We have no sense of context for that. We don't know why they're there. We know that they've been summoned there. We know that Sally is not, her body isn't very functional. He has to help her to the bathroom and help her sit down on the bed. And so there's all these things that we know about their future, but we have no context. When you were reading the um, birth, the the scene of Sally's birth, were you called back Mm -hmm. to that? Did it make you, did, did you wonder if that was caused by that? Um, no, and I did not because uh, he seems earlier in the reading to have referred to that she had some recovering to do in the baby and he didn't make it sound dire. Okay. So I, I didn't suspect that, but I, I think that I suspect that she has some kind of serious health problem coming and then that's part of it. Um, but we don't know why they've been summoned in the first chapter. And I think everything's converging towards that. So to your point, if I were to make a guess, I would say, we don't know the conflicts yet, um, but we do have all these little anecdotes in which little things are being revealed 
And that's why it feels like a short story to me because I don't know what yeah. what it's converging toward, but I suspect it's converging towards something. Yeah. So to both of your points, as I was reading, I was thinking a lot about how like, man, I like this book a lot, but it's hard to say exactly why. Because I'm not like, you know, like when I read, you read something in genre fiction, for example, the whole point is, you know, exactly what the stakes are, right? Mm -hmm. It's just the stakes are, the stakes are almost always the same in some way or another. They're just colored through the context of a specific genre, whether it's spy fiction, Western fiction, science fiction, whatever it is, right? You have the stakes are stated clearly, generally pretty early, and you're along for the ride. And then the question is, who am I rooting for? Right. Um, and then and then it starts to get literary, right? The more literary versions of that take those and they run with them and they play with them and they have fun with them and they expand on them and it becomes something bigger and richer. What we're getting here though is we're not getting any of that. And mm. you know, the, one of the and and two to exactly what Angelina is saying about Sally. Like in some ways she is there's an incompletion to her. Like there's a, we don't fully know her um, because it's in Larry's memory. We don't even get the whole picture of the story. It jumps around a lot. So it, it's got this sense of shorts of like um, a series of um, moments more than it does some cohesive whole. And so I got to thinking about how I think if you're along for the ride on this book, there's something sort of very it's got to be something very personal. It's got to be something very like um, there's one specific thing or two specific things. Like you just love the way his style works, right? Like you mm -hmm. love the way he writes a sentence or you are really into like, wait, you really are just fascinated by someone like with as much exuberance and personality as charity. And you want to see what happens with her. Um, it's, it's all non-traditional things that, that cause people to respond in certain ways to literature. Like if you study the way, if you read the way they've, the things they've studied about how people respond psychologically, emotionally to different sorts of stories, none of the ones that are traditional sort of would apply to this. Right. So I got to think, I just thought that, would, and so what you guys have basically both said have both sort of confirmed the, what I was thinking about that and like f followed along and, 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 and like you said, I've finished it. So I've got a context for it. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you both just kind of, you and people who are reading it have to sort of be like, huh, yeah, okay. I trust these people that they said that there's a reason why they like it. And they have relatively good taste most of the time. Right. Um, mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm still hoping that I will gain some new insight about the nature of friendship through reading the book. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be perceived as criticizing it. I mean, that's part of the reason why I was so reluctant to answer the question, do I like the characters? Because I... I really don't want to make my personal experience be the, the measure of the value of, of this book. But I mean, if you're going to press the question, then the answer is, is, is yes. It's so far outside my experience that I simply, I cannot relate to these people in a way that they almost don't even seem like human beings to me. Mm -hmm. um, and this is certainly not the only book that has had that effect on me, you know, books that try to explain um, the way a woman feels about her children, man, just don't, don't, don't even give me that. It's not going to ring true to me. It's not going to be how I feel about my kids. I'm so out of the realm of no <laughs> the normal, the way women think about their children, all that kind of stuff. Also, I've had so much trauma in my life that it affects the way that I can read those things. Um, many, many books that per portray like certain um, milestones in a woman's life as, as being such a joyful memory are too loaded with for much pain and grief for me to be able to enter into that. Um, so, I mean, there it's, it's certainly, this is certainly not the first book I've encountered that I simply, I just, it's just, uh, it's like watching a foreign film and no subtitles. <laughs> 
It's an interesting way of putting it. <laughs> you, well, well, okay, that actually is an interesting way. It is because I feel like I see him moving around and it looks artfully done and I'm just don't get it. <laughs> yeah, so you so if you were looking for specific things like you could watch that if you were studying cinematography or something and you could say, "Wow, the cinematography that they did there is great. I don't actually know what's going on." at least as far as the words that they're speaking, but that is an amazing shot that they put together there. Right. So I'm willing to say that the flaw is in me. Like I, I you know, Graham, please do not hide under my bed tonight and murder me. Because <laughs> I'm praising the, the book. Thing, but... I'm criticizing myself. <laughs> well, to a certain extent, I, I mean, any book that manages to last more than like two weeks if we don't like it, at least part of us not liking it has something to do with us and not just the book. Um, like that's true of... I mean, I would admit that about hundreds and hundreds of books, like including my distaste for Charles Dickens, my relative distaste for Charles Dickens, not all <laughs> Charles Dickens. I'll clarify that. I'm willing to admit that that's probably more of a me thing than it is the book. Or just a preference thing, right? Yep, like you say, yep. and, and if, that's kind I mean, of what I'm saying, right. In the way that we read colors that too, I like this because I like psychological readings. Angelina likes archetypal readings and it's very hard to find it in this book, although it's there, but it's it's hidden. And yeah. so there's, I mean, some of that's just, I, I'm not a big fan of Milton and I absolutely recognize his greatness. Some of that's preference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we only have so much time to invest in so many things. Let's right. talk about, let's do an archetypal reading of chapter 10 then. <laughs> <laughs> Great um, idea. So chapter 10 is the, uh, the flood, the birth, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. death, the birth. Um, following after an actual almost death and rebirth, which that's, that to me is really fascinating structurally that he does that. It's the chapter after Sally goes through the actual almost dying. Like you said, Angela, right. I love that you pointed mm -hmm. out that she looked like a skeleton corpse. Yeah. Corpse like she comes out corpse -like, corpse, yeah. and she's not moving. Yeah. She, no, it, she's absolutely described the way I also thought that was fascinating and well done. Right. Because that is the way our memory works. One memory triggers another. It totally makes yep, sense exactly. to me that he would remember her almost dying, which would make him remember the other time she almost died. And he even says at the beginning of 10, right? One more. Mm -hmm. One more fragment. And I think that speaks to Heidi feeling like they're like vignettes. They mm -hmm. are fragments. Yeah, vignettes mm -hmm. is a good word, yeah. Yeah, that's a better way of putting it. Mm -hmm. And he, and he, like you said, he admits it. Right. Um, I love, and like at the beginning of chapter eight, he says, here's one thing that eventually struck me. Mm -hmm. so he yes. begins a lot of these chapters with tying it to the one before yeah well that was right. because of that fantastic line from henry james right about journaling which i so feel is true yes yeah right think, yes. henry james says somewhere that if you have to make notes on how a thing has struck you it probably hasn't struck you mm -hmm. this is also why i don't take pictures i'm so glad there are people let me qualify this. I'm so glad. <laughs> I genuinely am glad that there are people in life whose gift is that they see in pictures. I don't think anyone is surprised here that I see in words. Right. So my gift would not be to take a picture. Um, and I, I really struggle with that. Like I have almost no pictures of my children because of that. Um, and part of it is that I, I feel like I try to be so deep in the moment of experience that to stop everybody and to take a picture is like to jolt us out of the moment. Yeah, there's so, lot, you don't have the instinct to do that. No, I don't. It, it would be very artificial and it would, it would literally, it would put an end to whatever moment I was trying to capture. 
other people can do it brilliantly. I can, I, that's not my gift. Um, I can understand and, that. But, and, but I feel like I have a very intense memory and I can recall things and I can see things and, and, and remember them so intensely without needing a picture. You know, and he, and he says I don't, that he doesn't keep, you know, he said, maybe it was, it may be just as well that I have no diary to, me- to remember by. Mm-hmm. And, then he goes, and then right after that, he goes into these really intense memories. And so I was been looking a lot for like, are there areas where we can, you know, how, like when you tell a story and the first time you tell it, uh, Malcolm Gladwell just did a whole season of his podcast on this. You tell a story and then it's one version of the story. And then by the 20th time you've told it, it's a different version. They've done um, studies on how, like, I think they, they, they connected with somebody who experienced something traumatic. No, what was it? I can't remember what it was. It was like a very specific event. And then they asked them to retell the story one year later. And then they asked them to tell the story five years later and then 10 years later and then 20 years later. And even one year later, the version that they tell is completely different than the version that they tell the day after it happened. And um, they'll say, well, even one year later, they'll say, I don't know why I would have said that. Mm-hmm. That's not like me to say that. And so the people's, the way we see things and think about things after the fact gets colored by our experiences and the things that happen after it and the way we've told the story over and over again. And so I've been looking for, to see if there's ways that, that has shown, could potentially have shown up in this. Not that he's not trustworthy. Oh, he, but he talks a memory. lot about how unreliable a memory can be. That has been f- at the forefront of his of his storytelling, yeah, which I really begging, enjoy. He's begging you to question him. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that was. I just I lost that page, but I just I just had that open. So let's talk about ten then, Angelina. Okay. Mm-hmm. When you're reading ten and you start thinking about all these archetypes, how does that like? How does that work for you? Like, what's well, how's your brain functioning? I guess is, I mean, how can you actually talk about how your brain's functioning? How can a person do that? Right. <laughs> what is that? What's that? Like, what are you doing as you're doing as you're, and what are you seeing? I'm marking all of it that we're in spring. This is clearly a lot of resurrection imagery being set up and he gets the news that he's, you know, gotten the ax. So there's the death and the resurrection, the, the two motifs running through the whole chapter and then they go into the water. Um, and anytime, um, anytime someone enters water and comes out, that is a literary death and rebirth. It symbolizes baptism. Uh, and in baptism, we are crucified with Christ. Uh, and then we come up on the other side. So there was no question this was going to be, this was a major turning point event, um, in, in, in their lives. Um, and there was that one line, uh, this is not an, he stops it, right? <laughs> he stops it in the middle of the, are we going to die? And <laughs> says, this is not an adventure story. And being yeah, after the yeah. fact, it doesn't generate suspense. Obviously, we all survived. There was no heroics. Everybody behaved well, which I think, and I wrote this in the margin, that this is a microcosm of the whole story. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. When I, but I, it's interesting that he says that, but then he also is pointing out that he was gasping and bulging eyed from the shock. So yeah, that's reminiscent of the kind of stuff uh, E.M. Forrester would do, right? We talked about that. Like, we'd, we'd want to get sucked into the, what's going to happen? And he'd be like, hold on a minute. Don't get yeah. excited. It's not Nothing, what it's actually about. Yeah, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> she died. Two weeks later, we moved on. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that you talk about how much you like that Forrester book, though, when he does the same thing, a lot of the same things that... that oh, I uh, do. I do. And I Stegner's like Wallace Stegner's writing. 
the characters in in Howard's Inn were a lot more just they were just more relatable to me intellectual women trying to navigate life i mean that's i can relate to yeah. that yeah that makes two, sense yeah two happily married couples learning how to be friends together that's not my story and oh, the two oh, intellectual oh, that it had men been. oh that it had been but it was not <laughs> well we all have so far <laughs> yeah you're not dead yet yeah <laughs> let's not bicker and argue about who killed who oh wait sorry wrong well, i have a um, boat ride scheduled for later today you don't know how these things might go david <laughs> you, you may want to cancel that um Heidi, so let's let's talk about some specific things. Angelina mentioned the whole springtime thing, which is a great mm -hmm. point. Um, what are some of the things that you noticed? Uh, the whole conversation between the couples, the dynamic between the couples when the storm came up was striking to me. But the, um, the way they each responded to the yes. threat. Uh -huh. Yeah, well, and to each other in the midst of that threat. Go on. Okay. Um, first of all, that tell, little IA Richards, uh, right? Thanks. I will. Um, that little IA Richards story was brilliant. Um, on page 131, um, <laughs> it tells the story about IA Richards, who is a new critic, all about preserving meaning in stories and ex uh, uh, not just in reading by your own feelings, right? So, and there's a lot more to it, but that's that's a basic introduction. On page 131, talks about I.A. Richards falling into the sea uh, or into the lake. And when the rescuers reached the capsized boat, Richards was still clinging to it as if to preserve the meaning of meaning they rescued him. So and funny. as if to preserve the meaning of meaning they rescued him. But the Wisconsin professor had let go and drowned. I don't know. He must have just laughed his head off writing those two sentences, I thought. So, I'm pretty sure um, he did, yeah. Yeah. And by the way, Wisconsin, brilliant. Is, Wisconsin is one of the premier liter uh, literature um, English departments in the whole country, and especially at this time. I, when I was looking at, I was thinking about getting, trying to get my MFA like 10 years ago, like really pursuing that really, really aggressively. And I, my dream school was Wisconsin. It wasn't Iowa. It was Wisconsin. Mm. Um, but then never happened. And I probably would not have gotten accepted anyway. But, um, you know, a little side note there. Right. Well, and that was completely tangential to what I was going to say, uh, which was more about the, um, the dynamic between the couples, uh, down again on page 131, Sally's eyes find mine. Though the wind has stirred spots of color in her cheeks, she is still wan for the birth business left her anemic and she exists on liver and spinach and such things. And now she is clearly uneasy. Her face brings me back from exhilaration with the lurid light and a sense of exposure and risk. I try to incorporate into a look several confident reassurances. Um, our boat, how do you say that word? Scow? Our boat is a scow. Sorry, I don't know anything about sailing. I don't know where we are. Yeah, 131. Our okay. boat is a scow, oh, unsinkable. Yes. Sid is an experienced sailor. Shipwreck is something that happens only to the I.A. Richardsons of the world. I know she is hoping I will suggest turning back, but I can't do that. It is Sid's expedition. He is the one to say when we should head for shore. And then I'll, I'll stop reading. But then at that point, so he rejects his wife's appeal for Sid, right? And then Charity intervenes and makes... Sid turn around 
And then they get caught in the storm and capsized in spite of her management of the situation. So there's, I think that's, there's so much there about the dynamics of this, these couples and this friendship and then how they're going to navigate the world. No pun intended. Right. Exactly. Or maybe pun completely intended. (laughs) So, um, yes. And then to Angelina's point, they fall in, but they don't get drowned, right? Like they, they are, it could, there's the death and rebirth. And then there's also the question of, are they going to get lost, but still, you know, not die? So anyway, yeah. But they have also, and we don't want to forget this, They've also gone through the metaphorical death and rebirth of their, of course, because yes. but, because Larry getting passed over professionally is that that is a test. Yes, and and so they're that's a little bit of a death, and they're coming through the other side. So, um, you know, we, we we like to talk about on this show about learning how to read. That's one of the skills of reading is that you want to look for the multiple levels of meaning. And so, an author is not going to just throw in a capsized boat because you know he's he's following the checklist. Well, right. it's been two hundred pages. I better put a boat in there. Um, right. You know, that this is very meaningful same thing with you know Heidi pointed out the the, the story of IA Richards right before um the you know the the action happens um that's another tip for our listeners right stories within stories that can also include dream sequences uh songs any number of things uh even if it's like we're all sitting around at dinner and we're telling funny stories anything that the author draws your attention to of a story within a story is always meaningful it's always going to be um on the theme or on the motif very often will be used to introduce something that's about to happen Mm-hmm. Uh, for either foreshadowing or to contrast it. Uh, so so all of these are very typical things. And if we go back just a little, right before they tell the story of I.A. Richards, this was my favorite section, is when they talk about um, a Sid completely in character wonders if this stormy bright lake might sometime in future acquire because of William Ellery, a poetic and legendary aura such as Wordsworth and Coleridge gave to the lake country and Hardy gave to Dorset. We mm-hmm. agree that until it has had a poet... A place is not a place. I loved that, right? Mm-hmm. That the, the idea of the telling of the story, the telling of the thing is what makes the thing. And then, and then immediately after that, there's the question of, are you going to write the story of us? Right. Um, and, and so that speaks to all the things we've been saying about memory, because right? It's more time. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that, but that speaks to all that we've been saying about memory and the way memory and story and all of it go together. There's something about telling it that makes it real. Yes. Yes. To create an artifact out of something. Well, and I think it goes to, to the point we, keep, we all keep making, which is this story is so beautifully crafted so that even with all the ways that all three of us, and I'm sure our listeners, are reading this story, we're all arriving at similar, if not the same conclusions about it. And that's a very well-crafted story. We are all seeing the same things. I've got to, I'm going to, I'm, I'm trying to decide if I'm going to say this on the air. I have to now do some research on, I got to write one to Wendell Berry a letter. I've decided it. I've got to write a letter. <laughs> to <laughs> ask him something about Wallace Stegner. Stegner. Yeah. Ooh. I now have to know what he, what Stegner actually thought of the new critics. Mm-hmm. That's a good, I'm, I was wondering the same thing. Because we know what he thought about new humanism, right? And not, I, I, I think to your, Angelina, you said this early, it's fascinating to put this within its 
a context of literary criticism and, and uh, scholarly life around English literature at this time in history. The, uh, yeah. It's really it's it's not difficult for us because we were in English departments, but it might be difficult to our listeners to imagine how cutthroat those departments could could be. Yeah, <laughs> it's not exactly that. the way you think about English teachers, but that publisher parish stuff that's real and intense, yeah. mm-hmm. and and often created a scenario in which teaching was second to publishing. You know, I was just going to say it's it's not great for the classroom, and it's not great for. I mean, I believe that we're in the the current state of the humanity. Absolutely in the American higher education is, is driven by that. Mm, um, absolutely. Has been birthed out of such that, you know, and this was in the early stages, you know, the thirties here is in the early stages of that. It wasn't ever meant to be that way. Um, and the death of the so-called ongoing death of the humanities, which mm-hmm. needs to be written about at length and major publications all across the world. Um, yeah. I think is very tied to the way the humanities were, became tied to, um, became tied to publication and not the experience of books in the classroom. And, 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 you know, again, because it's my great podcasts, right? Exactly. (laughs) But, but, you know, but that, that is very reflective of my own experience. And so that stuff, that part of the book is fascinating to me. The whole tension between not just publish or perish, but what should you publish? Not poetry, not short stories, not novels. Yeah. Yeah. You don't create encyclopedia entries, right? Don't create artifacts that people can actually, they can help us to understand how to live. Right. And that line where Sid says 20 years from now, this university will be teaching your novel, but they're going to fire you for writing it like that nail on the head right there, buddy. That is so true. Right. (laughs) Which is the, I mean, this I'm sure is a soapbox for all of us. This is part of why in our current, with the current death of the humanities that you refer to, David, we now have a a general perception of literature that it, that it belongs in the classroom instead of in the public square, that ordinary people can't talk about this, right? Because uh, English teachers are writing scholarly treatises on it. Would it be fair to say that it belongs only to the specialist? Yes, exactly. I think think that that has absolutely been one of the death knolls of it is to start treating it more like a science and less like an art. And so, you know, right. so you're applying theory to books and, and it was all an attempt to, to you know, sort of uh, raise the street cred of the study of English literature by making it scientific. Right. And now nobody can read it without help. Uh, and so, you know, look at, look and, and what you just said about podcasting, right? Like podcasting is in, in most cases for the common man that the, the, the you know, you're turning on a podcast on the way to work, like to be able to bring a conversation like this into the public square for ordinary redeemed people is very, very important. This is a really good work. I heard somebody and, say that the podcast is NPR for the normal person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, but, you know, um, I, I, I am certainly not one to, to um, start bashing scholars. In fact, uh, that's one of the concerns I have of the modern classical movement is I think we're too anti-academia. I think we should redeem it, not reject it. However, having said that, as much as I appreciate the scholarly scholarly Mm -hmm. contribution and think it's necessary, not everyone has to be a scholar. Um, Just like not everyone has to be, you know, an astrophysicist. Uh, Everybody is what they are called to be. And, and some, I remember in my, um, my oral exams for my master's degree, they asked me about this specific thing, this tension between high art and low art, my answer then is my answer still all these decades later, Shakespeare, man, we, we, we have taken the most 
common, you know, Saturday afternoon double feature entertainment and elevated it to the level of the gods and act like it was always treated that way and only, you know, the most <laughs> scholarly, erudite, educated person could ever come close to approaching the bard in, in terms of enjoyment when that was just not true. You know, Dickens, Shakespeare, on and on. This was this was entertainment. Before there was television and radio, people would look forward to the latest installment of Dickens, right? And they would read it out loud for an That's evening why, entertainment. Yeah, that's why I think, you know, Ken Myers talks about this in his book, um, All God's Children in Blue Suede Shoes, which I've been rereading because I'm going to be interviewing Ken Myers next week. Oh, uh, nice. That's a good book. I enjoyed that. Yeah, so he, but he talks about how we often think in terms of like, um, the only defining characteristic of, of culture is like the things that it creates, but it's more, it's like things don't get, things don't get their meaning just because of like what they say, but it's also like the, in, the sort of uh, infrastructure is the only word I can think of right now, but it's also sort of like the world, the infrastructure that those things are coming out of. So we, mo modern culture, pop culture, you know, contemporary pop culture is a problem, not just because of like the things that individual artifacts, like individual songs, TV shows say or express, but also because of the sort of um, bigger picture, um, I don't know, worldview that they're being created in. Um, well, not just I as I recall ahead. from reading that book. Uh, yeah, so, so just to, just to further make the point, not worldview in just in the sense of, like we use it of ideas, but more like the um, the art that it's drawing from. He talks a lot about when you've lost your folk art as that common cultural right, connection that you draw from, then you can only. Well, actually, this is what he said. He wrote this book in the eighties. He was a prophet. He says that the more <laughs> we remove ourselves from our connection to our folk culture. And by that, he meant mythology, fairy tales, you know, nursery rhymes, all the things kids yeah. used to grow up knowing um, mm -hmm. that wasn't necessarily taught in school. You just, that was part of growing up. He says um, that the more we divorce ourselves from that, we will no longer be able to tell stories, but mm -hmm. our movies will only become remakes of stories that only exist and technical achievements without the story. Huh. I mean, wow. was he a prophet that is or a prophet. what? Because that's exactly what has happened yes yeah the tradition matters mm -hmm. always i love though that he had the like the side the, the i the i richards thing is hilarious i mean for people mm -hmm. who don't know just that line about meaning um what does he say they rescued him at, when they reached the capsized boat they rescued him uh no, richard was still clinging yes. to it as if to preserve the meaning of meaning and they yep. <laughs> Uh, or they rescued him to preserve the meaning of meaning. He wrote a, I.A. Richards was a new critic who wrote a book called The Meaning of Meaning, a study of influence of language upon thought and the science of symbolism. So brilliant. I, I always, I've always read that as like a little bit tongue in cheek by, by Stegner where he's like working within the tradition of literary archetypes, but he's also just sort of saying he's kind of making fun of them at the same time. But also, and that the other professor's nameless, right? He's yeah. nameless. Right. He drowned. We, nobody remembers him. Right. No, that yeah. was it, the, everything about that scene is 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 fantastic. So, is it Sid's fault? It capsizes. Should we lay blame? Or is it Charity's fault that she won't let him do? Is, is there blame? Or is to it the storm? Right? Is it just yeah? The storm? Just life tossed them about unexpected things. You can't and navigate. No matter anything. who speaks into it, you're going to get capsized. Well, it is not a coincidence that what they do, what Charity says, 
and they don't do what Sid says. And then even though, like, I'm not saying had they done what Sid said, they would have avoided it. Right. But they did what she said and it still happened. And it yeah, still happened. She can't, struck me as well. she can't control it, right? She can't avoid it. Um, and, and she's always thinking she's going to protect Sally, right? She's going to take care of Sally, but she tried and she sort of like plays as if she's like the goddess of the sea or something and is going to mm-hmm. control it, but then she can't protect Sally. Right. Right. And I, and this connects to something that struck me in, in these chapters when, um, when, when Larry was talking about ambition, I, I wrote this in, in the margin uh, that I use the word ambition differently than he's using it there. He, he seems to be using it, um, like to mean setting goals and working hard and, and trying to make the most of the gifts that you've been given. Whereas I feel like when I use ambition or I think of a person as ambitious, I'm thinking like this is somebody who's trying to control the outcome, right? Like I am going to be the CEO. I am going to be president. Like, and that's actually, that's, those are great goals. <laughs> you know, you can have the, I can say I want to be, my goal is to be the best writer I can be. And I'm going to work very hard at that, but I cannot make my goal. I'm going to write the greatest American novel that's ever been written. That right. is, that's a wish. That's not a goal. Right. That has and, nothing to do with ambition. Right. Well, yeah. it's, well, it's, but it's this idea of trying to control the outcome. And I think yes. char- charity falls into that a lot. We're going to do these things and you're going to get this job. Our children right. are going to get married. And so here she tried to control the outcome and, and can't you know what's interesting is the number of there i go again what's <laughs> cool is that um, there are no, mo- no yeah. go back to interesting quick <laughs> so there's this abort. thing that's happening here that i kind of like um and it's the number of things in a row that she can't control mm-hmm. so at the end of the previous chapter they named um her lang and it's this great honor to them and sid's like wow that's awesome and she's like but now i can't get married yeah, so ruins she, my plan. Mm-hmm. yeah so the number of ways her plan gets her plans get ruined um sort of nor is it a coincidence that up. it's her doctor that she recommends that yes it with that's Sally. a great point yep yes and then also so, there's something- so her well-meaning help hurt somebody mm-hmm. what yep. is the, what and is it the- worked for her she had this super easy delivery and recovery and bounce back like it was nothing. And, and it almost cost Sally her life and it yes. hurt the baby. Um, yes. So, so all that's at of, least all, three things so far. little microcosms of, of what yeah. could potentially, and she's not, um, you know, there's no malice there. She genuinely, I mean, who, who of us would not be like, I had a great experience with this doctor. You should try him. I mean, any, anybody would do that. That's sure totally natural. But again, the fact that there are so many things out of her control and also what works for her might not work for Sally. It could be disastrous for Sally. Right. I'm trying to think, is there anything else? Any other examples of that in these chapters? Because it's certainly early on, it seems like everything kind of works in her favor and everyone loves her and, you know, she's throwing these parties and, um, we're getting this sort of, um, it's just this very positive, she seems controlling, but it seems to work out for her. And then now this, the things are starting to pile up in the negative column for her. Sure. Well, I mean, right. she, but she also didn't work for the promotion. She didn't get the promotion. True. No, right. Yeah, true. Cause, cause Larry says, oh, she'll be happy you didn't get fired. And he said, no, that no, she won't. Cause that was not the goal. It wasn't right. about me not getting fired. It was about a promotion, which I did. So Sid perceives Sid, it as a failure. Yeah, but and but he he could be perfectly happy. That's the thing. That's the sad <laughs> yeah, thing about right, Sid. He right. could be perfectly happy doing that job and writing his poetry and living more modestly. 
Mm-hmm. Right. But, but but her ambition in a way drags him towards things towards in towards um and it makes it makes Sid the the passive one in some ways because it's dragging him towards a life that he's not all that interested in and that seems like isn't that one of the big questions about any really any marriage or friendship right like how do you balance desires of two individual people and the ambitions of two individual people who gets to decide between two things that are an opposite that are in opposition to of it with each other right but if we so if we those that's a legitimate question so if we go back to larry's uh imagining of what their proposal and courtship was like. And he gets imagining. So either this is how it happened or he's, he's looking at how they are now and, and read it backwards. But if Probably we look at his both. description of it, then it looks like Sid agreed to those terms. Mm. Yes. Right. Cause she, yes. it's not like she has a hidden agenda here. She spells it out quite plainly. This is what our life will be like. If we get married, this is how it's going to be. And, right. and given what we know of her and how it kind of, intoxicating she probably was for someone like him Mm, he's sort of like he gets enchanted by her right you don't you don't fully blame him but maybe he didn't know exactly what he was getting into and so well she's oh go ahead david well the only thing i was gonna say is last week we were kind of killing charity's dad right uh-huh. For the way he was. Oh, behaving. I was just about to say something about her mother. Go ahead, bring that so up. So I was. I didn't say this last week, but I can say it now. It makes me wonder if the mother was more like Charity, and so his response to that. I'm not saying this was mm-hmm. right, but his response to that was to hunker down, to sort of be like a turtle, get in the shell, work on his book. He's never going to finish. You know, focus on his work because it's easier than having to compete to be combative. You know, that's just, it became the way he approached that. I'm not, again, Absolutely I'm not agree. That. I'm not saying that was right. the excuse for his behavior or the way he interacted with his daughters or whatever. But no, it's but it's definitely that. an interesting double. Though, those two those two couples, especially in this section, when Charity admits to us that she felt like her mother was overbearing and mm-hmm. overshadowed yeah, yeah. her. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. It almost feels like she's trying to outdo her mother. <laughs> no, right. yes, yes, and but we know from that description that Larry gave us that Aunt Emily was really quite something right with the 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 reading and the nature study and the educating these kids i mean the the bar was set pretty high there she was the charlotte mason mom gone wrong she (laughs) (laughs) exactly the charlotte mason mom with too much ambition (laughs) (laughs) um uh I also thought it was interesting in the in the celebration scene with Larry's little cele- impromptu celebration with the news that he had gotten his novel published. Um, I, one of the things about being a more like a reader who looks for patterns is I definitely had the sense in that chapter that it was Larry's rise and Sally's decline. Like I wasn't surprised at the end of that chapter that she ends up almost dying. It it felt it felt. You know, the whole, like, I must decrease so you can increase. Like It felt like that to me in that chapter, the way she's tired. She's very, very pregnant. She's, she's getting overlooked. The, the room. Yeah. He kind of, he just tucks her in and goes out and, um, you know, and she almost dies. Well, and even, and it, one thing that it says is that uh, he realized he should have made a toast that Sid made for, for her. And int- and also tellingly, Larry blames himself for what happens to Sally. I should have made the decision sooner because her water broke. I waited too long after her water broke to do something about it. And in the moment, maybe that's not true. But the way we remember things and the things you look you look yeah, at, yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's not relevant if it's true at all. It's one of you know, it, it's, it's his sure, guilt, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, we all we all 
feel guilty about things that are not actually our fault, but, but it, it speaks to the what way could we, we have done differently. Yeah. yeah. It speaks, it speaks to how intensely we feel and the sense of responsibility we feel for another person. You know, if our kids get injured or something, we're always thinking, Oh, I should have come out and told them to get out of that tree or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And then sometimes you just have to let them fall. Um, right. That's the way we do this. Is that correct? Parenting. Um, yes. uh, Heidi, that sounds very Cindy Rollins approved, David. Well done. <laughs> before, uh, before I was saying that about the connection to charity's parents, you were going to say something and then you so kindly acquiesced to my thought. So I'll give you the floor now. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad to, have heard this last few minutes of conversation because um, it adds to, or just deepens what I was going to say with your guys' thoughts, which is this, the two different dynamics in this marriage. Um, on page 115, before we kind of got on this conversation, we were talking about charity and Sid and uh, the career change and, and ambition. And on page 115, uh, Sid is talking to um, Larry after the party, the celebration party. Meanwhile, Sally has been put to bed and she's going into labor all by herself. Um, and they're out talking about Larry's career. Um, and he, uh, Sid says, it isn't as easy to quit as you think. You forget Charity's timetable. The kids are on time. I'll say that for her. She's living up to her part of the compact but I promised her I'd stay with teaching and give it my whole attention without cheating till we either get promoted or bounced. So as far as she's concerned, that means till we get promoted, she won't admit the other possibility. And this is the important line. She says our commitment to teaching is like a marriage vow. Mm -hmm. Once you've made a decision like that, you should never look back. So part of it, I think is absolutely her ambition. And part of it is this is you know how the best part of us is also the worst part, right? Oh, like yeah. she's made this commitment. Like this is a thing they've agreed to. So for him to back out for his own bean rose is going to feel like a betrayal of a vow to her. And that's actually a valid thing for a wife to ask of her husband, right? Keep your word to me. This is how, what we agreed to. And what, regardless of his motives for that, that is a commitment that he's made to her. And she sees it as that sacred. Agreed. Absolutely. And so, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And then also, but I think that the backdrop of that is really important because you see how Cherry dominates, you see how Charity dominates Sid, but then you also see how Larry, to your point earlier, Angelina, like Sally is in the back going into labor and he's talking about his career with his best friend. And right. he just kissed those women. Yes. And, and so again, you look at that and you think, yes, I see all these, I see these dynamics in which you have one dominant person in the marriage and the other person acquiesces to that. And that's actually how most marriages are. Maybe it's a bit of a negotiation, but usually that's a, that's a typical dynamic within a marriage, but they're reversed with these couples. And I'm not sure, Larry, I don't know how much he even sees that as he is in some ways casting judgment. On I suspect charity. they're reversed in most yes. times when couples are really close. Right. But and, anyway, go ahead. Add to that, Angelina. Well, I was going to say, taking you, the, what you, what you drew out about, you know, his teaching to his commitment to teaching is like a marriage vow. Mm -hmm. This is said right after Larry kisses these women. Right. So it's like a flirtation with mm -hmm. breaking the vow, which is a lot of what Sid is doing too. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I'm in the teaching, but I'm going to come in your office and complain <laughs> and say that I wish I could wish I could write poetry instead, which is Sid's version of drunkenly kissing a couple of women. Hmm. Right. He's oh, flirting yeah. with that commitment. Yeah, that's and and that's part of marriage, I think, is that like I want something my spouse wants something different to the point you made earlier, David, like that's marriage is, I don't want to, the word negotiation seems so transactional and it's, it's, it is sacramental, not transactional, but if you can think of a better word than negotiation, but that, that Probably is not. so much of marriage I is I love you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I love you. Like I love myself, but you want something different than me. So who may, who decides? Cause we can only have one of those two things. And I mean, that's, that's part of learning to love somebody else. And no, and, no, no. I thought love was never saying, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Tell our listeners even get that reference. Yes. I, I really added myself as a subject. <laughs> I've never seen that movie, but I have heard that in a lot of sermon illustrations. <laughs> 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 Anybody who used that sermon illustration probably needs to read Ken Meyer's book. Okay. Um, Can't wait. Okay, so I've never read then, it. Then how then how does the negotiation work? In other words, I'm asking right. should we look at charity and like do we automatically have to criticize her or just exactly. accept that that's how it is between them? Right. Right. And she by I mean, no doubt about it, she absolutely dominates Sid. Um, and, but there is a dynamic there that he contributes to as well and has throughout the course of their relationship. And we saw that in chapter six. So that's, you know, that a marriage, a friendship, all of it is, we all, everybody contributes. It's very easy, I think, to, to, to demonize or villainize charity, but there is more to it than just her dazzling and dominance. Okay. So has anything good come out of her sort of steering of Sid's career in life? Right. That's a great question. Well, and I think, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, and he says that he says she was right. People who didn't get cut. And Larry says she was right. So if I, if I had played by the game, I wouldn't have lost my job. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, he attributes that And to in her, that yeah. sense, Larry and Sid are the counterpoint, right? Sid's like, right. I want to write poetry. She says, that will not keep your job. Larry right. does the, the creative writing, and lo and behold, it doesn't keep his job. But you know what's right. interesting? <sighs> is that... Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that word is fine. It's fine. Redeem the word, David. <laughs> okay, I will. I'm going to redeem. You know what's interesting? Um, I'm going to just say with, with... Yeah, I'm just going to own it, exactly. Mm. Um is that um, charity really pushes? Um, yeah, charity really pushes Sid to not pursue his sort of creative bliss, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, she sort of keeps him from losing his job, shall we say? She enables him to keep the job. Sally really seems to be encouraging Larry to pursue his creative bliss, to pursue the stories, to pursue the the novel. Um, she edits, she does all those things for him. And um, he also does other things and it ends up making him some money, but it doesn't keep his job. And so the opposite, you know, you could right. say Sally's approach 
was wrong just from a purely practical standpoint. Right. But yes. What is, yeah. but if, so if they're the each protecting something though, right? right? Right. No, that's right. true. That you can't protect everything in your relationship or everything in your life. So you have to make choices. The two women make two very different choices leading to, to two very different outcomes. One of them protects the life, the sort of status that, that is possible. And Sally protects, you know, seems to be protecting more the desires, the, the longings of her husband. Yes. And it, you know, th- I mean, you. We could probably argue for a long time about which is more worthy. right. Which is why I think that this book is so lovely because it's so human. Like this is, I mean, this this dynamic is in my marriage, right? I'm like a Sally. I'm like, do whatever you desire, honey. I will support you in whatever you want to do. There's been times I probably shouldn't have done that, right? But it there's that's what makes these characters in this book so compelling to me is that if you were to ask the should question, you're going to get 50 different answers. And yet they're all part of the humanity of this unfolding relationship and dynamic and, and narrative. I I find that very compelling and and emotional to your point. Like my, I'm tender hearted towards it because I could say, no, charity shouldn't be the way she is. But then I think, oh, I have such compassion on this woman. Like, yeah. what are, like, this is your, the life, this is your only life. Mm-hmm. And he said he would. Yeah. Right. So, it's, yes. It's very difficult you, to look at either the, any of the choices that they make and say that they're just wrong or they're just perfectly right. right. So, but you, so you have different dynamics within the couples, but the couple themselves, I guess you could say has a personality and, and Mm -hmm. they're, Mm -hmm. the two couple personalities are very different. On the one hand, Larry and Sally seem to approach life as take what comes and hope for the best. So even the fact that he sort of last minute got this job and ended up in this place and was hoping to turn it into something good versus uh, Charity and Sid who like have well-articulated goals and work for them. So they did not just fall into a situation in this town, right? They, they picked it. This is an up and coming spot. This is our pilgrimage. We're going to make this place great and we're going to be at the center of it. And then off they go. So it's just, it's two very different approaches to life. Larry and Sally are like a nice, clever golden retriever and (laughs) Sid and Charity are like a cat or something. (laughs) A bulldog. A stag or something. Dazzling. I mean, I just keep seeing that. Right? Yes. Great question. That's the greatest question. Yeah, the only thing I guess that I'm still struggling with is why does Sid chafe under, under this? Um, I, cause I just, I guess I just feel like if he, if he chose, if, you know, if part of what dazzled him about her, she's like, stick with me, kid, I'm taking you places. And then right. <laughs> halfway through, he's like, I don't know that I like these places. Like, I, I, right. So he married a female version of his own father. Who's going to be constantly controlling him with her judgment. Right. So this, this, can he function without someone casting judgment on him? Well, I think it's fair to, to to ask the question, why does he chafe? And it's also right. fair to ask the question, like to say we understand why he chafes and also say, well, maybe it's best. Maybe she does have the best ideas in mind, even if it's not exactly... Right. Like we yes. could say it's possible that Charity is right, even mm-hmm. if it's difficult for him. Right. And right. it's also so- fair to still say, we understand why it's difficult for you and have sympathy for him, even if Charity is right. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I'm a complete romantic, as our listeners know. So there's no universe in which I, like Charity, would say to my poet husband, stop writing poetry. There's some encyclopedia articles that are going to get you ahead. Like that would never happen. I would be, we will live on the street, but you will write the poetry. Right. <laughs> um, so I don't relate to that. However, 
So having said that, I'll, I'll say something practical. It's the depression and she kept him his job and that is not a small thing. Exactly. No, exactly. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Okay, well, we got to end this conversation. So final thoughts. Oh, I wasn't ready. You weren't well, ready for me to ask. I know. I'll spin some nonsense while Heidi collects her thoughts. Uh, I, I enjoyed today's discussion. I, I think this is helpful for me. Um, you know, <laughs> in the words of Michael Scott, explain this to me like I am 12 years old. Now explain this to me like I am five. Like, I feel like that's what it's like when y'all are like, well, you know how relationships are and dynamics. No, I don't. Break it down for me. I need a chart, a Venn diagram. So this is, you know, this is part of what I'm hoping to learn from a book like this. I don't know. Golly, having to make life decisions with another human being. How does one even begin? I have no clue. Teach me your ways. Just read the book. Let's find out what happens. (laughs) Um, Heidi. Is that enough? Did she spin enough for you to collect your thoughts? <laughs> well, I, I, yes. So I've been, even in this conversation today, as we talked about it, and I found myself defending charity, I am drawn once again to the, to the question of, of mercy in human relationships. Even when we read a story, it's so easy to cast judgment on the characters and that, and you have to make judgments in reading or, I mean, that's just part of being human. There's nothing wrong with making judgments. There's nothing wrong with liking one character or as Angelina, as Angelina said, just saying, this isn't going to be my favorite book. Like it's, I don't have the emotional connection. I don't have Like there's nothing wrong with making those kinds of judgments, but I also think it's so important to also keep in mind to have mercy on the characters, to try to understand them the way that we do people in our everyday life. And that that is a huge part of reading, um, is being willing to change your mind as you read a story and to say, oh, I'd get that. Not necessarily to take back the judge to say, because I look at charity and I still think, She's wrong in a lot of ways, but I have more mercy on her and just taking her part and trying to understand her. Hmm. Um, yeah. And so just that balance of judgment and mercy, it's just as important in reading as it is in relationships. Hmm. I think that the idea of trying to understand characters mm-hmm. is really, that's an interesting point because you don't have to, maybe, maybe the question is, um, Maybe the question of whether we like a character or not is that's a little bit surface level, perhaps. Sure. And, yeah, that's um, that's what leads to the question of mercy, though, right? If you don't right. like it, you say, "Well, why?" Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But I think the idea of like trying to understand characters, understand why mm-hmm. they're doing what they do. I mean, that can help us understand why we do what we do, right? Like help us yes. know ourselves better and know other people around us and have sympathy for humans in general. Um, and and you know, as as a writer, I think if you're working hard to try to make characters interesting, so to speak, what you're trying to do is trying to create characters that a reader can ask of them, why are they doing what they're doing? And can I understand, can I, can I follow that reasoning? Like that's a, that's a big part of it. Um, mm-hmm. Like what we think about with Michael Scott in the office <laughs> to bring it back. to Angelina. Right. So next week we are going to talk about chapters 11 through 13. This is the end of part one. These are, these are the chapters that Graham says are the masterpiece. It's the masterpiece section of the book. That's what he says. Oh, wow. So no pressure on these chapters. I'm excited. Well, I know what 13. I'm going to say when I come in. 
This was a masterpiece. <laughs> no, you're going to get on and say, what was he thinking? <laughs> That's is- right. I've been withholding judgment up till now, but I'm done. <laughs> Graham is a fool. Um, uh, all right. Well, we are. We're, thank you for listening. Actually, I would me. never say such a thing about a man who takes my picture for a living. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay that's a great point. That is an excellent point. <laughs> it's such a good point. Um, there's a lot of power in that. Like, can you imagine? There is. Can you imagine, like, back when people used to, um, used to, uh, like, do portraits? Would you have to sit for eight hours? <laughs> Um, all right, well, let's end this conversation. We're going to go off the rails here soon. So, <laughs> um, thanks to thanks to both of you for being on here. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. Thanks to all our Patreon supporters. If you are interested in getting some bonus content, including talks by our various contributors, um, you can head over to Patreon.com/slash/CloseReads and you can support us there. We've got some cool swag for you. If you have yet to get that, um, then we would certainly appreciate your contribution and your support. Please do leave comments starred reviews all those kind of things and whatever app you get your podcast from and don't forget about the daily poem coming out well live now at the time that you're listening to this and then also don't forget about the place the thing currently reading king lear all right well for angelina for heidi for all of us here at the close reads podcast network i'm david kern thanks so much for listening happy reading and we'll talk to you next time Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.